Hello and welcome to today's episode of Mythical Storytelling by Shinjan. Today's story is called The Spirits and the Lovers. Before I start though, just as a reminder, if you like the podcast then please subscribe to it and do share it with your friends and family. And if you really like the podcast, you can now show your appreciation and support by buying me a coffee. My ID is Shinjan B. Please see the show description for more details. Right, let's start the story. At the distance of a woman's walk of a day from the mouth of the river, called by the pale faces, the white stone, in the country of the Sioux, in the middle of a large plain, stands a lofty hill or mound. Its wonderful roundness, together with the circumstance of its standing apart from all the other hills, like a fir tree in the midst of a wide prairie, or a man whose friends and kindred have all descended to the dust, has made it known to all the tribes of the West. Whether it was created by the Great Spirit or filled up by the sons of men, whether it was done in the morning of the world, ask me not, for I cannot tell you. No, it is called by all the tribes of the land the Hill of Little People or the Mountain of Little Spirits. No gifts can induce a native to visit it. For why should he incur the anger of the little people who dwell in it and sacrificed upon the fire of their wrath behold his wife and children no more? In the, all the marches and countermarches of the natives, in all their goings and returnings, in all their wanderings by day or by night to and from lands which lie beyond it, their paths are so ordered that none approaches near enough to disturb the tiny inhabitants of the hill. The memory of the red man of the forest has preserved but one instance when their privacy was violated, since it was known through the tribes that they wished for no intercourse with mortals. Before that time, many natives were missing each year. No one knew what became of them but they were gone and left no trace nor story behind. Valiant warriors filled their quivers with arrows, put new strings to their bows, new shod their moccasins and sallied out to acquire glory in combat. But there was no wailing in the camp of our foes. Their arrows were not felt, their shots were not heard. Yet they fell not by the hands of our foes, but perish we not know how. Many seasons ago, there lived within the limits of the great council fire of the Mahas chief, who was renowned for his valor and victories in the field, his wisdom in the council, his dexterity and success in chase. His name was Matori, or the White Crane. He celebrated throughout the vast regions of the West, from the Mississippi to the Hills of the Serpent, from the Missouri to the Plains of Bitter Frost, for all those qualities which render a native warrior famous and feared. In one of the war expeditions of the Pawnee Mahas against the Bruntwood Tetons, it was the good fortune of the former to overcome and to make many prisoners, men, women and children. One of the captives, Shakia or the Bird Girl, 
a beautiful creature in the morning of life, after being adopted into one of the Maha's families, became the wife of the chief warrior of the nation. Great was the love which the white crane had for his wife, and it grew yet stronger when she had brought him four sons and a daughter, Tadaka or the antelope. She was beautiful. Her skin was fair, her eyes were large and bright as those of the bison ox, and her hair black and braided with beads, brushed as she walked the dew from the flowers upon the prairies. Her temper was gentle, and her voice sweet. It may not be doubted that the beautiful Tataka had many lovers, but the heart of the maiden was touched by none of the noble youths who sought her. She bade them all depart as they came. She rejected them all. With the perverseness which is often seen among women, she had placed her affections upon a youth who had distinguished himself by no valiant deeds in war, nor by industry or dexterity in the chase. His name had never reached the surrounding nations. His own nation knew him not, unless as a weak and imbecile man. He was poor in everything which constitutes the riches of tribal life. Who had heard the twanging of Karkafa's bow in the retreat of the bear, or who had beheld the war paint on his cheek or brow? Where were the scalps or the prisoners that betokened his valor or daring? No song or valiant exploits have been heard from his lips, for he had none to boast of. If he had done out becoming a man, he had done it when none was by. The beautiful Tataka who knew and lamented the deficiencies of her lover, strove long to conquer her passion without success. At length, since her father would not agree to her union with her lover, the two agreed to fly together. The night fixed came, and they left the village of the Mahas and the lodge of the Mahotari for the wilderness. Their flight was not unmarked, and when the father was made acquainted with the disgrace which had befallen him, he called his young men around him and bade them pursue the fugitives, promising his daughter to whomsoever should slay the Karkapaha. Immediately pursuit was made, and soon a hundred eager youths were on the track of the hapless pair. With that unerring skill and sagacity in the discovering footprints which marked their race, their steps were tracked and themselves soon discovered flying. What was the surprise of the pursuers when they found that the path taken by the hapless pair would carry them to the mountain of the little spirits, and that they were sufficiently in advance to reach it before they could be overtaken? None of them durst venture within the supposed limits, and they halted till the white crane should be informed of his daughter and her lover having placed themselves under the protection of the spirits. In the meantime, the lovers pursued their journey towards the fearful residence of the little people. Despair lent them courage to perform an act to which the stoutest resolution had hitherto been unequal. They determined to tell their tale to the spirits and ask their protection. They were within a few feet of the hill when, on a sudden, its brow, on which no object had till been visible, became covered with little people. 
the tallest of whom was not higher than the knee of the maiden, while many of them, but these were children, were of lower stature than a squirrel. Their voice was sharp and quick, like the barking of the prairie dog. A little wing came out at each shoulder, and each had a single eye, which eye was to the right in the men, and to the left in the women, and their feet stood out at each side. They were armed like the natives, with tomahawks, spears, bows and arrows. He who appeared to be the head chief, for he wore an air of command and had the eagle feather, came up to the fugitives and said, Why have you invaded the village of our race, whose wrath has been so fatal to your people? How dare you venture within the limits of our residence? Know you not that your lives are forfeited? Tataka, for a lover, had less than the heart of a doe and was speechless, related their story. She told them how they had loved, how wroth her father had been, and how they had stolen away and been pursued and concluded her tale of sorrow with a flood of tears. The little man who wore the eagle feather appeared moved by what she said, and calling round him a large number of men, who were doubtless the chiefs and the counsellors of the nation, a long consultation took place. The result was a determination to favour and protect the lovers. At this moment, Shongatongo, or the big horse, one of the braves whom Mahatri had dispatched in the quest of his daughter, appeared in view in pursuit of the fugitives. It was not till Matori had taxed his courage that Big Horse had ventured on the perilous quest. He approached with the strength of heart and singleness of purpose which accompany a native warrior who deems the eyes of his nation upon him. When first the brave was discovered thus wantonly, and with no other purpose but the shedding of blood, intruding on the domains of the spirits, no word can tell the rage which appeared to possess their bosoms. Secure in the knowledge of their power to repel the attacks of every living thing, the intrepid Maha was permitted to advance within a few steps of Karkapaha. He had just raised his spear to strike the unmanly lover when all at once he found himself riveted to the ground. His feet refused to move, his hands hung powerless at his side, his tongue refused to utter a word. The bow and arrow fell from his hand, and his spear lay powerless. A little child, not so high as the fourth leaf of the thistle, came and spat on him, and a company of the spirits danced around him, singing a taunting song. When they had thus finished their task of preparatory torture, a thousand little spirits drew their bows and a thousand arrows pierced his heart. In a moment, innumerable mattocks were employed in preparing him a grave, and as he was hidden from the eyes of the living, Eritatako could have thrice counted over the fingers of her hand. When this was done, the chief of the little spirits called Karkapaha before him and said, Maha, you have the heart of a doe. You would fly from a roused wren. We have not spared you because you deserve to be spared, but because the maiden loves you. It is for this purpose that we will give you the heart of a man, that you may return to the village of the Mahas and find favour in the eyes of Matori 
and the braves of the nation. We will walk away your cowardly spirit and will give you the spirit of the warrior whom we slew, whose heart was firm as a rock. Sleep, man of the little soul, and wake to be a better worthy, the love of the beautiful antelope. Then a deep sleep came over the Maha lover. How long he slept, he knew not. But when he woke, he felt at once that a change had taken place in his feelings and temper. The first thought that came to his mind was of a bow and arrow. The second was of the beautiful maiden who lay sleeping at his side. The spirits had disappeared, not a solitary being of the many thousands who, but a few minutes before, had filled the air with their discordant cries was now to be seen or heard. At the feet of Karkapaha lay a tremendous bow, larger than any warrior ever yet used, a sheaf of arrows of proportionate size and a spear of a weight which no Maha could wield. Karkapaha drew the bow as any native boy bends a willow tick, and the spear seemed in his hand but a reed or a feather. The shrill war whoop burst unconsciously from his lips and his nostrils seemed dilated with the fire and impatience of a newly awakened courage. The heart of the fond Indian girl dissolved in tears when she saw these proofs of strength and these evidences of spirit which she knew if they were coupled with valor and how could she doubt the completeness of the gift to affect the purposes of the giver would thaw the iced feelings of her father and tune his heart to the song of forgiveness. Yet it was not without many fears, tears and misgivings on the part of the maiden that they began their journey to the Maha's village. The lover, now a stranger to fear, used his endeavors to quiet the beautiful Tatuka and in some measure succeeded. Upon finding that his daughter and her lover had gone to the hill of the spirits and that Shongotongo did not return from his perilous adventure, the chief of the Mahas had recalled his braves from the pursuit and listened to the history of the pair as far as the returned warriors were acquainted with it when his daughter and her lover made their appearance. With a bold and fearless step, the once faint-hearted Karkapaha walked up to the offended father and folding his arms upon his breast stood erect as a pine and the motionless as that tree when the winds of the earth are changed. It was the first time that Karkapaha had ever looked on angry men without trembling and the demeanor so unusual in him excited universal surprise. Karkapaha is a thief, said the white crane. It is the father of Tatoka that says it, answered the lover. Else would Karkapaha say it was the song of a bird that has flown over. My warriors say it. Your warriors are singing birds, they are wrens. Karkapaha says they do not speak the truth. Karkapaha has a brave heart and the strength of a bear. Let the braves try him. He was thrown away the woman's heart and become a man. Karkapaha is changed, said the chief thoughtfully. But how and when? The little spurs of the mountain gave him a new soul. Bid your braves draw his bow. Bid them poise their spear. Their eyes say they can do neither. Then is Karkapaha the strong man of this tribe? As he said this, 
he flourished the ponderous spear over his head as a man would poise a reed, and drew the bow as a child would bend a twig. Tarkapaha is the husband of Tatoka, said Matauri, springing to his feet, and he gave the maiden to her lover. The traditional lore of the Mahas is full of exploits, both in war and in the chase of Karkapaha, who was made a man by the spirits of the mountain. Thank you for listening to today's story. As usual, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. You can contact me on Twitter. My handle is blabberingshin. And you can also email me. My ID is iamshinjan at gmail.com. All these details are present in the show description. Don't forget to share and subscribe. And as I said before, if you really like the podcast, you can show your support by buying me a coffee. My ID is Shinjan B. So thank you once again. Till next time. Goodbye.